I'm a big believer in the fintech infrastructure movement. I continue to believe that it's still too hard, too expensive, too time consuming, and too complicated to launch a fintech company from the most macro level. And if we can enable people to spend less time building the core things over and over and over again, they can kind of focus on on their core innovation and distribution, and that's going to enable more innovation in the whole space. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders, a weekly podcast where we learn from today's global leaders in fintech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. If you enjoyed this conversation, I encourage you to share it and please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows so more people can learn from it. My guest today is Mera Agarwal, partner at Redpoint Ventures, a VC with a strong track record in fintech, including great portfolio companies like Stripe, Ramp, Nubank, and many more. In addition, Mira is not only a thoughtful fintech investor, but she's also a content creator, consistently putting out great pieces of content through her newsletter, Make Sense, or Redpoint's website. In this episode, we discuss the CFO tech stack, how fintech companies are helping the office of the CFO with modern tools and whether a true self-driving corporate wallet is even possible. Bundling and rebundling. The last decade has been about unbundling bank services, but we've started to see a shift in the opposite direction. What does this mean for the industry? What a crypto winter means for Web3 founders and why Redpoint will continue to invest in the category. Redpoint's original content strategy, how they became the most popular VC on TikTok, and a lot more. Hope you enjoy this great conversation with Meta from Redpoint. All right, Meta, how's it going? Welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast. Hey, Miguel. So nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining all the way from uh, California. Is that right? Yeah, San Francisco. San Francisco. So, so Meta, we have a, a lot to talk about, mostly about FinTech, and which is our world. But uh, let's uh, hear a bit about yourself. Uh, I know you are a founder turned investor. So uh, maybe guide us a little bit through your, your life uh, and how has it revolved around entrepreneurship? Yeah, for sure. So actually, my first experience with entrepreneurship was um, through my family. There's a lot of people in my family who are entrepreneurs. My dad actually, you know, was always was kind of a tinkerer or uh is the best way I would put it. And so I was always helping him with his um, kind of side hustles or side businesses. Um, if you will, they weren't tech businesses, you know, necessarily, but they were um, entrepreneurial ventures. And so, I, you know, I kind of ca- caught the bug early and um, kind of wanted to go do that my- myself as well. But yeah, and then where I think where I gravitated to was tech, because that's where there was such a um, like nexus of entrepreneurship and energy. And so I uh, worked on two startups before I um, got into venture. One was an uh, enterprise scheduling startup called SchedgeMe. I'm sorry, where we were, um, uh, it was the first wave of Omnichannel. We were selling customer-facing scheduling solutions for two folks like Sephora, Bed Bath & Beyond, Related, et cetera, to help 
them drive consumers from online to offline. And then started uh, Roomadex, which was a social roommate finding website uh, where we pulled um, friend graph data from Facebook back when you could do that and showed you the equivalent of LinkedIn first and second degree connections and then built our own social graph on top of it. And then um, kind of find, found my way into venture and and from there, you know, fell in love with fintech kind of along the way. And, and so um, spending a lot of my time there these days. Yeah. I, I, one thing that I, I love about Redpoint is that you um, put out a lot of original content. And obviously to me, that's important. That's also part of what I do. And I, I know how hard it is and I appreciate people that do that. Um, and you, you've done that uh, for, for all of the verticals that Redpoint looks at. Uh, you've done it for FinTech, of course. Uh, maybe tell us a bit about Redpoint and, you know, when, when did that start? When did this kind of um, idea or call it strategy to put out content and, and educate uh, the world with some of the things that, that you're building internally and, and rather than, you know, keep it only for you guys and kind of have that secret sauce that's going to make you better versus everyone else. Yeah, I think it was pretty organic for many years. Um, you know, there are a bunch of us here that are more um, thematically oriented. And so we're doing thematic work um, across sectors and, um, I think, it, you know, I, I'll just speak for myself, but the idea, I, I spent so much time and energy and had the privilege of talking to so many amazing entrepreneurs, um, and leaders in, in different industries to have a perspective on it. It seemed obvious to me that the, that, you know, what I needed to do with that was to kind of package it up and share it with other people in the hopes that it could um, be helpful to them in their either, um, you know, building or starting, a company. And then I think, you know, more recently, we've kind of created more structure around the content strategy. So, you know, um, everyone knows Rashad um, on TikTok. Uh, he, he's amazing. And, and we've kind of grown that channel from zero to 20,000 followers in under a year. And I think our content, it's a mix of short form satirical content, along with some, what I would call edu- edutainment. Um, you know, and we're, I think we're always trying new stuff. So, um, I, I have my sub stack. I, you know, was posting on other plat- medium and other platforms too. And before, and we're trying video, um, Logan's got his podcast. There's a lot of, um, different things that we're trying and working on. And, and I think it's a way to showcase the expertise we have, um, and, uh, to share it, share what we've learned with, with the rest of the community. And I think if you, um, yeah, if you were to talk to to our our partner Josh Matches, which who leads the charge on this, I think they're you know being very thoughtful in terms of constantly thinking about it from a holistic perspective, calibrating, um, kind of thinking about what's driving impact and what's not. So, how do you measure that? How do you measure the ROI, the impact that your content is having, uh, or or is that something you're not that really focused on? Um, I think it's something we think about. Josh is probably the person that's um, best suited to answer that question. But but as you know, in venture, ROI is um, a very long-term oriented metric. And we're kind of under a year in on a bunch of these things, right? And so it's a little bit too early to be um, overly quantitative on it. And I think 
if I think about the all this content as a reflection of who we are at Redpoint, one of the pillars or key parts of our culture here is that we take our work seriously, but not ourselves. And hopefully that comes through in uh, in all of this. Like it's been so fun working on it um, and getting awesome feedback from people. And I and I think one of the most rewarding pieces for me has been um, kind of very authentically showing people who we are, which is you know we don't take ourselves too seriously, but but we we try and do our best work. Let, let's talk a bit about some of the specific pieces of content that you have produced, and and uh, I know that uh, you along with. Uh, Good friend Urvashi worked on the series, the the CFO Tech Stack series, call it. And I'm not sure that was the exact name, but uh, I remember reading it. By the way, two years ago when it came out, I thought it was great. I reread it yesterday, and in many ways, it felt like not you know some of those things that you were talking about two years are still developing today. It's, it's a little bit like um, the technology has been out there for a while, but it's only starting to get adoption. So may, maybe tell us about uh, what motivated you to, to write that series and what was the reaction and also what did you learn in the process? Yeah. So um, like you said, Urvashi and I worked on that together. We're here. We were spending a lot of time, I think, a little bit uh, very thematically on this category of uh, finance tools. Uh, I think it came from a few different places, right? Um, from seeing our companies, the tools they use, their level of satisfaction, <laughs> difficulty of like closing the books or g- analysis, getting analysis or the amount of time they were spending on, um, you know, kind of basic tasks that sh- feel like they should be easier than they are. Um, and you start peeling back the onion. You're like, oh, I kind of understand why this is so complicated. And maybe this is why it hasn't been you know, technology hasn't solved this problem yet. Um, and so we spent a lot of time talking to CFOs, meet it proactively, mapping out what are all the different um, workflows that a finance team does, like where's their opportunity, where are the companies, uh, where are companies um, already innovating, where is there still opportunity? And so that was kind of an output of that work. Um, we started with, hey, what does the workflow look like? What are the different tools you know, what are people looking, what are CFOs looking for? What's working, what's not working? And then, and then took it from there. You, one of the things you talk about is maybe exposing the laws of, of the phrase, the self-driving wallet, you know, that uh, you, you're not really convinced you can have a self-driving uh, CFO office or, or call it wallet. Cause you, you do argue that they're very much need, there's the need of the, a human in the loop, right? But but you can obviously automate a lot of these tasks. Over the last couple of years and also going forward, um, how are you seeing specifically this vertical, this tech stack evolving? And, you know, what are some of your predictions? Yeah, I related to that comment in particular, I think that at least for me has continued to um, be reinforced I think every company has similar um, use cases and workflows, but everyone is a little bit of a special snowflake in some way or has some nuanced workflow. And the more and more I talk to CFOs, um, we're putting out another piece of content about it um, a, a little it kind of in a couple of weeks, but the idea that um, CFOs are really um, hesitant to buy new products and they're not 
they're like very hard people to sell to. Um, you know, I don't know that I really believe that's the case. I think they're really discerning and they only want to buy tools that are going to make their lives easier. And it's really hard to make their lives easier because the, what they do and finance teams do, it feels kind of um, simple from the outside in, but then you start peeling it back. You're like, why does it take two weeks or a month to close the books after after the calendar month is over? Like, shouldn't it just be like moving some numbers around and like reconciling some things? Um, like, like what's going on? And and then you kind of peel it back and you're like, oh, wow, it's, it's pretty complicated. And some of it has to do with kind of making numbers match, but some of it has to do with people dynamics. Um, and it's hard to automate all of that away. <laughs> yeah. And, and particularly if you think of large enterprises or even medium that have made some acquisition and then they have to integrate multiple systems, uh, I, I, you know, they're, yeah. they're, that becomes even more complex. Yeah. So, I, and I think related to that is, is kind of what we were just talking about, which is that um, I think the winners in the space are going to um, make the time to do those tasks and the overhead um, much less, but they're not going to eliminate the need for people in finance to be involved. Um, and I think people who take that route are probably, you know, my bet is they're probably not going to be successful. Yeah. And so it's no secret that over the last year, a lot of the fintech world has moved mostly on the B2B side. There's still, of course, a lot of consumer propositions being born every day, but but uh, you're seeing a lot in B2B and, and it sounds like you are also focused a lot on, on B2B. I, I want to talk specifically about super apps because we associate, the public associates super apps with consumer super apps and and we all know you know wechat and and many others um across the world especially in emerging markets but uh you're also looking at b2b super apps so so maybe tell us how you view super apps the concept of super apps and whether these are feasible in in the us yeah um it's a good question so consumers i i, I mean i've kind of said said this um on, online already is I actually don't know that a consumer super app is feasible in the US or um, maybe more specifically I I think what our definition of a is of a super app will evolve because I, I don't think it's realistic I think for the vast majority of the population I don't think it's realistic for us to believe that consumers are going to do all of their fi- live all their financial lives via one app because the barriers to having multiple products and do best in class, use best in class tools, either because of the UX or the cost or whatever, the functionality, whatever it is, it is actually lower than it used to be. Um, I think there are certain segments of the market that, um, you know, I've talked to some some folks that are um, at Chime elsewhere that have kind of po- pointed out to me very astutely that there are some segments of the market maybe that switch their phones all the time, right? Um, or using prepaid or whatever it is. And as a result, like the friction to log in and reset up like many, many apps perhaps, you know, constrains the number of products that they're willing to engage with. Um, but even still, I, I think, uh, you know, consumers are becoming more discerning. They're, they're more discerning than they, than they were 20 years ago, for sure. The access to information is much more available. There's a lot you can learn. And so the, and, and the friction, which we already talked about, is so much lower. And so I think the reality is that, you know, this idea of one app to rule them all, um, 
I, I just question whether that's the future or whether the, there's going to be multiple products on, on folks' phones. Yeah, I, particularly, it feels like you build a super app through you, your entry point is a, is a product that users use every day, right? And so payments or communication tools. And so if, if company like Venmo or, or uh, the Cash App, they haven't done it yet, or WhatsApp, you know, they, they also haven't done it yet, then who else is going to do it? So it's, um, I, I kind of, I see your point. How about on the, on the business side, on the B2B side? By the way, just on that point, I think a bunch of those companies have done an exceptional job adding additional products. I mean, Cash App is just an incredible story in terms of the um, velocity of features they've launched, the user growth, cross-sell. Like, you know, I think it's an amazing case study. Um, but but I, yeah, but I think it's that idea of like, um, do, are you the direct deposit and therefore you own everyone's, like the all all of someone's cash balance, right? Um, the ultimate, the holy grail is always, has been, hey, I want to ultimately own direct deposit because it means I'm going to own the consumer's financial life. Um, I, I, I've started to question whether that's really uh, the way things will work. Even if you do get direct deposit, do you need it? Is that is it that important? Um, and, and even if you get it, does that mean you own their entire, you know, financial life? And, and I don't, I don't think that you necessarily need to in order to build a profitable business. Um, but I think the framing, if you change the framing, it's interesting, at least for me to pl- play the story forward and say, okay, if, if that's not the goal, the goal is not to own everything, then what does that mean for the products that I want to launch and how, I, what I think about in terms of success with what I'm building and, and new economics and profitability, <laughs> importantly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the concept that, was uh, of course popularized by uh, Angela Strange. Is that every every company is going to be a, a fintech company? Um, and you you you've spent some time thinking about this, particularly from the from the payments uh, side, um, talking about non fintech companies that are I've put out really high quality financial products, specifically payments one, right? Uber comes to mind and a few others. Um, tell us about this category, you know, whether that's something you you think is going to continue to evolve and what opportunities you're seeing there. Yeah, I'm a big believer that, you know, t- the term that Angela coined, that kind of fintechs kind of eating the world, if you will. Um, and, and kind of we had this thesis, you know, several years ago, um, back when Shopify uh, was kind of starting to become this fintech behemoth, you know, um, uh, we had an office hours with Kaz um, talking about Stripe Cap, or talking about, I'm sorry, Shopify Capital and kind of all the financial services products that they were building and how they think about build versus buy. And I think that's an amazing example of a company that's built so many financial services tools on top of the core platform where they st- that they started with, which was an e-commerce application um, that was enabling merchants to sell online. Um, but you start peeling that back and, you know, to enable merchants to most effectively sell on- online, what else do you need to do? A lot payment. You need to do payments. Um, maybe you need to enable multi-currency acceptance. You need to um, potentially provide them banking services, lending for inventory financing. And if there's a lot, 
um, there that enables that mission. And, and so that's a really great example of that. Um, so yeah, I'm a really big believer. I think if you, if your consumer needs it and you can become the core workflow, your core business is to be their core workflow and own that. If you can very thoughtfully introduce financial services as part of that, you know, there's a big business to be built and you're, you're adding a lot of value to your, to your end user. And it, and ideally you're also um, providing them with more and lower cost services than other people can because of the data that you have and the access you have to, to their um, information and their finances. Now, a lot of bright entrepreneurs have seen this, of course. Yeah. Maybe some of them have experienced it themselves. And they've realized, hey, this might be a business opportunity. I'm going to help companies build financial products, save them the hassle of building it in-house, and provide, you know, call it fintech as a service. Um, are you a big believer in that, or do you prefer companies to build it in-house? Um, I think depend it depends on what we're talking about and what the company is. The answer is so personal for each company and each space. It, you know, as with anything in fintech, I think it's very dangerous to kind of have a, a generalized kind of blanket point of view um, because there's always some loophole or some caveat or something like that. But um, I, but in general, I'm a big believer in the fintech infrastructure movement. I continue to believe that it's still too hard, too expensive, too time-consuming, and too complicated to launch a fintech company from the most macro level. And if we can enable people to spend less time building the core things over and over and over again, they can kind of focus on on their core innovation and distribution, and that's going to enable more innovation in the whole space. And so, you know, I think the caveat there is in order to enable it, we're going to continue to see more and more companies that are offering similar levels of flexibility to if you were to build it yourself. Um, the trade-off, I think, mostly today has been, hey, speed versus flexibility, and cost to, to a certain extent, but I think in the short term, it's um, speed versus flexibility. And that's a hard trade-off to um, make a decision on. And, and as this field continues, we're in such early days, as it continues to evolve, I think that trade-off will kind of um, compress pretty significantly, or that's my hope. Yeah. And, and that's that's in the US. If, if you, I mean, I know you you know fintech and emerging markets extremely well. You guys invested in, in Nubank and and fintech entrepreneurs in emerging markets, uh, Brazil or anywhere else, I'll tell you, you know, they got to build it in-house. You know, there's barely any fintech infrastructure companies, but they're starting to come up. So that's, Yeah, we're uh, starting to see them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's something to certainly watch very closely. Uh, and, and that kind of takes me to uh, the trend that those of us who've been in fintech for a while have seen, which is the last decade was about unbundling. There's that image that I love. Uh, it was kind of pointing. It had a screenshot of Chase and just a bunch of arrows for each product. And out of each product, there were like 10 fintech companies building only that product. Um, but now we're, we're seeing the rebundling. We're seeing either those companies launch multiple products merge in some cases with other fintechs or you know something in between so definitely now in the in the rebundling phase um do you think this is going to continue could there be room for 
another unbundling going forward? Yeah, it is a good question. I wish I had a crystal ball for you. I, I, I do think that the rebundling movement makes sense because I think what we saw for the, there was a ton of innovation in this unbundling movement, right? And some very large companies have broken out and come out. Um, but I think those are the exceptions, quite honestly. I think in consumer fintech in particular, the vast majority of companies ended up providing a value proposition of, of like a very specific product that was relatively low cost. And but they still had to acquire consumers and that's just gotten more and more expensive over time. And um, the barriers to entry are not, you know, that large. I think most of FinTech I would argue is distribution and trust versus a te- necessarily a technical advantage. Maybe some companies have um, partnerships or things like that, that are um, really hard to replicate either because they're exclusive or because it's taken a long time or because uh, just the difficulty of making it happen. But, but the vast majority, I think a lot of it is distribution and trust when it comes to consumer fintech. And so I think as a result of that, the unit economics have been really challenging because you're, you're making a few dollars in margin per user per month maybe and, and the the uh, cost to serve and the acquisition costs are so high and so the that's just been a challenging equation to build a profitable business and so you know we talked about this earlier but the idea of hey we're going to get them users they're going to use the product daily um, regularly they're going to trust us and then we'll add more services that they'll buy over time and i think we've seen that sometimes and other times not and w- to varying degrees of success but but I but I make sense in this universe to build a profitable standalone business. Uh, I think it's very hard to do that today in consumer with with a single product, unless you charge a lot of money for it or or can um, make a lot of money doing it. One vertical that's been in the in the news, of course, is uh, crypto. Um, you're you're not a crypto fund, but you have some great crypto investments. It's been a disastrous month. Uh, for the category. Uh, how, how are you thinking about it? You know, it has been quite a month, <laughs> for sure. But but I think the um, underlying fundamental um, promise of crypto is still there. We still believe in that. I think where it touches fintech is where I'm most excited, right? Um, and maybe this um, phrase that used to be not so popular, but the kind of web 2.5 really is where maybe my excitement um, peaks. And, and and it's because I think in my view of the world, I don't think that there's going to be kind of like a traditional financial services world and then a web three world and they, and they don't intersect and they're kind of two different universes. I, I think that they're going to collide. And, and my hope is that we pick the, the best of both worlds and kind of, um, you know, to our rebundling conversation, kind of leverage them for the end user, whether it's a business or a consumer um, so companies that are uh, providing infrastructure to enable that, you know, either l- leverage traditional financial services in in crypto where or Web3 where it's relevant or vice versa. I think those are the things that are the most interesting to me and exciting to me. So, so for those uh, crypto entrepreneurs who are thinking of raising their first round of capital or maybe additional capital, you think those companies are still going to be funded for the next few months or you think it's going to be pretty much frozen uh, going, in, in, you know, in, in the near to mid future? Um, I don't know the level to which it's going to be um, 
uh, to be frozen, I guess, to use your term. But I, I do think, you know, let's be honest, is it going to be harder to raise a money money for a, a Web3 company today versus a quarter ago or two quarters ago? I think yes. And part of that is going to be at least, I won't speak to other people for, for us at Redpoint is mostly going to be thinking about, hey, um, you know, how much does this company need to raise? And is the timing right? Can they, uh, to survive until this kind of crypto winter, it, it will reverse. It's, it's a matter of time. But the question is, how long will it take? Um, and so much of startups is timing. And so it's more about that than do we believe in the underlying technology um, and promise or not. And I think founders should be doing the same thing. They should be thinking about that, right? You know, what do we want to do and how do we want to think about um, building and progressing during this phase? There's, and like with any company, there's ups and downs and things come into favor and they go out of favor. And, you know, if you're building for the long term, you'll probably see a bunch of them. Um, good. Well, uh, Minas, so this has been awesome. Th- yeah, I think uh, people are going to enjoy learning. Uh, I'll provide links to your um, Substack, Making Sense, and uh, some of the most interesting articles that I've seen from you guys. But um, thanks. Thanks for stopping by. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me and for the really awesome questions. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode with Mira Agarwal from Redpoint. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and truly, truly means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, please drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.